Beyond the Ranch with Jay Gannon from Find the Ranch. Welcome to Beyond the Wrench. I am your host, Jay Gedinen. Today's guest is Squire Pettis. Squire is a regional after-sales manager for Alfa Romeo. On top of his roughly dozen years of experience with OEMs, he's worked a number of years in the rental car business as well. Squire has some insight that I think will be interesting to our listeners, and I'm excited to learn more about him today. Welcome to the show, Squire. How are you? I am doing well, Jay. Thanks so much for having me and thanks for inviting me out. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, and for those of you that uh, won't see the video, I've got to say Squire's got a really, really cool Alfa Romeo F1 background behind him. And uh, I, I just think that's the coolest background. I need to do something cool like that at some point. Well, what you got there is definitely good enough. You've got an old school gas can, looks like a engine stand. And uh, is that a milk truck door behind you? Yeah, it's a uh, it's an old uh, it's an old panel van door uh, that I got at like a swap meet, and so I just I actually like the color of it, and I've had a few people ask me about it. I'm like, yeah, I most people probably wouldn't take it as wall art, but that's kind of the stuff that's intriguing to me. So, <laughs> so no, we did that. That, that was perfect. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm really excited to get you on today. Uh, I want to start like we do with a lot of shows where. I want to talk about you for a little bit here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, how you got into the business and, and kind of what you do today? I'm a regional after sales manager. So the, the term after sales um, essentially is whatever happens with the client once they purchase the vehicle from the dealership. So after sales is it's a nomenclature, but it's a simple term after the sale. Once the client agrees to sign on the dotted line and press hard. They're making copies and get everything done. This is what happens after the sale. So vehicle servicing, part inquiries, uh, vehicle accessories, extended warranty coverage, things of that nature. We do not deal in finance applications and things of that nature, but anything that happens after the sale and ultimate retaining of that client is my department. I got into the business in general, um, a good, I would say, in life, probably 20 years ago, came out of college and I liked working on cars, um, had an engineering degree and wanted to see something in the automotive business. And I started turning wrenches and changing tires at a Firestone store. Um, I left Firestone and went to Goodyear and worked at the Goodyear operation for a little bit. Um, had the opportunity to leave there and go work for Enterprise and Hertz rental car nice. and had a good time doing a variety of things there, uh, store managers, retail managers. I did some fleet applications in that business and then I got the opportunity to interview with the Chrysler Corporation as a teleservice manager, which is pretty much a guy or girl who sits on the phone and calls dealers and talks about sales and service and things of that nature. Uh, graduated to getting, as they say, my keys and my car and my computer, to being a district manager um, in both sales and service operations. So with Chrysler, it's called the Mopar division. And then went from the Mopar division, um, interviewed to work with the luxury arm, which is now Alfa Romeo. Um, I did a little bit of stint working with both Alfa Romeo and Maserati stores. And then the company decided to do some separating 
um, I got called to do the Alpha Romeo side, and my counterparts did the Maserati side. So that's where I am, and here I am today. That's that's awesome. That's one heck of a history. That, that that's a, a lot of experience. Uh, what, first thing that first question that I've got is, what was the difference between dealing with maybe a Chrysler dealership as compared to dealing with like a high end, uh, like a Maserati dealership? I would say that there's there's three main things that we talk about. So in dealing with your Chrysler dealerships or what we like to call your domestic or what we call mass market vehicles. So, and it's not just Chrysler or the GM world or Ford or Hyundai, Nissan, whatever it is. There's a difference between your mass market vehicles and your premium or luxury clients. Um, the one thing that I've learned is that there's a difference and I won't, use a, I won't use the term status symbol, but there's a different mindset between the clients. So your average mass market client is using its vehicle primarily to get from point A to point B. The individual that uses it to get to work, the individual that uses it to tow or haul something, the individual that uses it to take the children back and forth where they need to go, and that's the primary course of action for the vehicle. There, there are some exceptions because you've got your Camaros, Corvettes, Mustangs, hot rods, things of that nature. And then you've got what's called your premium and your high-end luxury customers. So traditionally, your high-end luxury customers, expensive Porsches, Maseratis, Ferrari, Aston Martin, that's normally not your first primary vehicle. So your high-end car is your show car or your GT Gran Turismo, as they call it, the vehicle that you use to go out and and tear up some highways on a re on a weekend, or in in overseas in England they call it a B road or a C road or something like that. And then there's your premium segment, which is in between, which is sort of a hybrid in between. So your premium segment is that client that wants something a little different. They want a sporty, luxurious feel to a car they're going to use every day. So. They want to be able to, in the case of some of your Alfa Romeos, have a vehicle that if I want to go to the track, I can, but if I want to drive it docile on the streets, I'm able to. Nissan, a long time ago, came up with the idea when they invented the Maxima of this thing called the four-door sports sedan, or in Europe, they called it the saloon. So essentially, a lot of manufacturers have been doing things to put more power and better handling on some of the vehicles, and then they give it a different name. So Audi has its S-Line, Mercedes has its AMG variant, Alfa Romeo has its Quadrifoglio, and what they do is they take some race heritage in the common sedan, and they make it a hybrid. So you have a vehicle that when you want it to perform as a race car, it can, but when you want it to perform as a docile vehicle, it can. So the difference between those sort of clients is when you get into dealing with those clients, they spend a lot of time and research and energy on those vehicles so that they're able to know what it is that they want. So because those clients pay more attention to what it is that they're getting, we in the industry have to pay more attention to the service that we're giving them on the OEM side. How does it work? It, with selling performance and and say like on the warranty side so if somebody goes to the track 
and break something and it's probably because of abuse because they took it out but then the, 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 <laughs> you know what i'm saying like then the the actual you go and you see the promotional videos where a, a car is going around a racetrack and and they they kind of have that ideal that you know i'm buying this to to both race and drive uh, do you run into that at all it feels like something that would uh, that would happen where if somebody's pushing something to the limits and it, you might run into a warranty situation does that does that ever happen or is that just something that i i'm like eh, kind of kind of different oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah happens, happens happens all the time so, so so i read this in a manual and 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 you, you laugh at it but it's true so one of the fastest vehicles made on the planet right the, one of the bugatti so bugatti makes this 1200 1500 horsepower vehicle and gorgeous car they yeah. essentially right so gorgeous vehicle beautiful in sight never really course driven one Ticket price is $2 million, so we understand it. So there are certain rules that, let's say, this car has. So, for instance, when you turn the vehicle into what they call VMAX mode, there is a little stigma and statement that says that you may be borderline pushing the warranty on the vehicle, transmission, tires, things of that nature. There are written rules on... I would say common fast cars, like let's say the Nissan GTR. It has a launch mode where if you push it, it sends the thing into a rocket ship from zero to 60 in three seconds or two seconds or something like that. And it pretty much says in one of the owner's manuals, hey, do not do this, I think, four or five times in a row. So in an instance, even on our Alfa Romeo vehicles, so we have the carbon ceramic brakes, and it's, a, it's, it's an expensive upgrade. And it's a vehicle that you know when you take it to the track and you want to go, you go, you want to stop, you stop. So in the repair manual for this Alfa Romeo, in the repair manual and the owner's manual, it says, I'm paraphrasing this, if you are going to use this vehicle for the track, there is a break-in procedure for warming up the carbon ceramic brakes. Mm -hmm. And it is frequent and panic stops from 30 miles an hour to zero, from 70 miles an hour down to 30 miles an hour, from I think it's about 90 miles an hour down to 20 or so miles an hour, and then from 115 miles an hour down to about 40 miles an hour. And then and only then, after you perform these procedures, then the vehicle is quote unquote track ready. So you can imagine what clients think when they say, oh, my goodness, we're allowed to go this fast on this car. <laughs> it's, it can be uh, probably mis misperceived or it, it can be taken different ways, I'm sure, which makes uh, those warranty talks a little bit fun. Oh, yeah. Let me talk to you a little bit about technicians, right? And, and when I say technicians, one of the things I remember I, I, when I was going through tech school, and we had, you know, recruiters come in for the high-end OEs uh, in general. I remember being intimidated by them, right? And not not intimidated that, like, <laughs> like, you know, like they'd come in and they're like, hey, yeah, you can come work on this Ferrari or like whatever. And I'm like, I, I've i seen like two Ferraris in my life at, the point, at that point. And I, now I'm going to go work on these things. I don't feel comfortable. Do you see some level of of almost intimidation where there should be some level of excitement almost you know like where uh it, it it almost is overwhelming 
At first, yes. So the the the, the new technician that let's say we're going to go through this training. There's three things that I've noticed in working with the high-end, let's say Lamborghini, Ferrari technicians. There's there's two things that they normally are intimidated by. Thing number one is some of the complex nature that these engines and transmissions and technical pieces have. Um, you know, we were talking about Formula One technology earlier, and yeah. some of the technology is taken off of the race car and put in directly onto the road car. So that's the initial amount of, of, of intimidation that, that some of them have. The, the largest amount of intimidation that I see in talking to technicians at that level is not to the point of working on the car. The biggest level of intimidation they have is I have to drive this six-figure or more car, Yep. In the case of a Bugatti seven-figure vehicle, right? I have to now take it and drive it into a operating bay inside of a dealership or inside of a repair shop, park it into a stall that is this large, and it gives me maybe seven inches of room on the other side. Yes. If I have that vehicle with the suicide doors, or I can't remember what Koenigsegg calls them, that crazy name, the yeah. doors that don't open out, they open up and they open in. So a lot of times it's how do I work on this car without putting a, or I'll say it like this. I, I had a technician tell me, he said, I'm not worried about putting a $20,000 engine in the car because I know how to do that. I've been trained how to do that. The factory will teach me how to do that. I'm worried about putting a $1,500 scratch on your vehicle and having a dealership having to pay to get that scratch buffed out and cleaned up and having my service manager jump my you know what yeah. because of that. Well, and, and, and the owner of a high-end car too. I, I mean, you're going to, you're going to notice something like, and not that most techs don't truly care about, don't care about the well-being of a car when it comes into their bay on a normal basis. But when you've got one of those, like you said, a six-figure car where if you got, like, if, if you got a spot of grease on the interior, like you're, like you, mm -hmm. you probably just feel like the most worthless person <laughs> in the world. And it's not, you know, it, it's, um, it, it, you have to take extra precaution. And I think that is a little bit intimidating for a new tech, but there's also the other side of it where you get to work on that six figure car, you know, that's oh like, goodness. you know, like oh, that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. The, um, that's pretty cool. You know, when you get the opportunity to leave work and you know let's say go to the restaurant or the bar or the lounge with your friends and and you've got that that alfa romeo or that maserati technical t-shirt on that you've got from training school that that's there's a little bit of swag that you can get from saying you know hey that's what i do so yes it, 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 there's a definite plus from doing something like that this is really, uh, it's fascinating to me because it, it kind of brings me back to that time uh, coming out of tech school where you're, you're really trying to figure out what you're going to do. And, and I just remember in the back of my head thinking, man, I, you know, I, I could go into one of these programs, a specific program to, to learn about that manufacturer and go through all of, you know, all that specific training. And, um, and it was intimidating. So I, I hope, Young techs that are listening to this understand that part too. That don't don't let something like that intimidate you. Let it you know learn how to be great at your craft and and really hopefully get your foot in the door at, at a place like this. And it could result in some pretty cool stuff. 
Oh yeah, Jay, I would I would definitely agree. I I would also say that you know one of the things that that the younger technical crowd um, I would advise them to do is is pay attention to both the mechanical and the electrical side of things. So you know we have all learned that you know throughout time there is only so many things that let's say a normal engine is going to be able to do to produce power. So that's not going to necessarily change. But there's also computer technical expertise that some of these newer technicians um, should be learning and paying attention to going to the computer technical aspects of things and understanding wiring diagrams and, and, and those natures because as we started to see with the invention of your electrical vehicles, Tesla, Fiat, um, Peugeot, uh, Porsche, Maserati, all manufacturers are starting to dabble into hybrid technical trends. So with that being said, a technician almost has to decide if I'm going to wear the mechanics coveralls or your doctor's lab coat when you're starting working on some it's of these things. And, and sometimes it's hard to yeah, sometimes it's hard to say exactly what it's going to be. That's a really, really good analogy. And and I hadn't thought of it that way before, but even when I think about it, I'm, I'm restoring my father-in-law's old Jeep right now, right? And and I <laughs> I still feel like I got to put on the boots and put on the jeans and, you know, like just, uh, I, oh, yeah. I have to, you know, it, get in that mindset of I'm not in the office anymore. I got to do something a little different here. So I uh, I get that. And then kind of the, uh, the, the great, great techs in my eyes understand the mechanical side and then understand how electric affects or impacts that mechanical side, right? Like right. if you're, if you're going to have an electric, uh, electrical piece, tell a mechanical piece what to do, or, you know, if it, you're trying to figure out, you know, really that baseline of how something works. And if I were to give myself advice from when I was a younger tech, I, I think I would have tried to look at that more seriously uh, in terms of how do things work and why do, why is it important to know how things work? And it, it truly is. So you're not throwing parts at something you're, you, you know, uh, if I do this, it's going to impact this. And, and uh, I think a lot of young techs could really use that advice, uh, it, you know, to really, really take that part of the, the business seriously. Definitely agree. Definitely yeah. agree 100%. All right. So, one of the things that really kind of struck up a conversation between you and I was uh, a poll that we did a few weeks ago for our Wrenchway Insiders, and we did a poll on LinkedIn as well. But that was really, it was geared around uh, warranty repayment rates for for dealerships and technicians. And, and really, it, it obviously was a hot button topic. And what I loved about what you did, Squire, was was you came on and you gave some you gave some really good feedback and and you had some comments on on some of the uh, the postings that I think maybe that from the dealership side or a technician side that they don't normally get and it was good candid I guess conversation amongst uh, you know technicians and you and maybe some other uh, you know dealership type people. Where, where do you think the most common misperception is? And I know that's kind of a loaded question, but most common misperception of, of warranty in general or warranty repayment rates in general. What is, what is uh, maybe something that, that doesn't kind of click with, with a technician? The, the first thing that I would say that 
begins to be difficult from strictly looking at it from a technician side. And I guess I'll use this analogy. So if you were an airline pilot and you had all of the training on how to fly whatever plane that it is, right? That 737, 760, whatever they call them. And you get to the airport and you get a plane assignment. Okay, go to gate C8 or 4J. You go to the gate, you do all of your pre-flight checks, and you get in the pilot seat, and you're just told to take off, fly, and land. You really don't have a pre-flight plan. You really don't know 100% where you're going. You really don't know essentially how long it's going to take you to get there. But your responsibility, because you are a pilot, is to make sure that you take off, fly, and land. And all of the passengers on your plane are safe. Your flight crew is safe. You've got enough fuel. You've got enough food and coffee and peanuts to serve everybody. And that at the end of the day, when everyone's getting off of the plane, they're going to say, hey, Captain, good job, and give you the high five. And that's the difficult job of a automotive technician. They're handed a lot of times car keys or key fob nowadays. They're handed a piece of paper and within reason it's basically saying vehicle broken. And they're not told, that a lot of times they're told what aspect of the vehicle is broken or it does not start. Um, you know, the, the, the ever famous write it up for a no start. Write it up for no start, you hand it to the technician, the technician goes out there, and of course he's going to turn the key or push the button. And I had a technician friend of mine, so he said, because you're supposed to verify the concern, you go out there and you push the button, and he brings it back and says, all right, didn't start, did my job, right? So the, the, the main difficulty that I'm finding for the technician side is we have to give them some information on where to go to help them do their jobs because a technician is just that. It is not a, they're not mind readers. So the one thing that we find from the technician side is they have a very difficult job and they're trained highly to do that. But they feel from their side that what is happening is they're given a bunch of responsibility. Metrics, numbers, fix it like the first time, uh, CSI scores, all of these things that are weighing on their shoulders, and they don't always have all of the information. So I see that from the technician side, because I talk to a lot of technicians, and those are the things that they're saying. The first thing is information. The second thing is, depending upon how they're working it from a warranty perspective, what they're asked to do is they're asked to repair a vehicle to a certain standard, complete the repair, and of course, by them doing it in the service department, they're basically utilizing their time to collect a salary or hours or whatever. And they spend a certain amount of time on a vehicle, two hours, three hours, four hours, or whatever it is. When they finish that job, and they hand the keys into the vehicle, perfect running correctly, everything is correct. Their understanding is because of what I did, this is what I deserve. And then what they're told sometimes is, this is what you did. This is how much time that it took you to do this. 
However, this, within reason, is what we, OEMs, technicians, mechanics, warranty times, service managers, this is what we believe you are worth. So that makes them extremely frustrated because they're under the belief that I did X job and it took Y time, so I'm equal to Z amount. And then they're told that they're given a, a number which is totally different than what they expect. And their first reaction is to say words that I'm not going to use on this podcast, but that's what they do. <laughs> and that's what makes things frustrating for, for our side, from a manufacturer side. Yeah. So the disconnect there, right? And, and where, where does that, I guess, where does that happen? Is it not communicating up front what the, uh, what, how, how long it's going to take to do that job? Or for the most part, do they know they have a pretty good idea of, okay, th th this engine job is going to take me eight hours. How, how do you approach it when you go into a shop and a, and a tech says, hey, listen, you guys just aren't paying a fair rate here. Or, you're, you're, you know, it's not, it's not realistic to, to do that. What, from, from your mindset or your process, how do, you, how do you start to kind of break that down and, and really start to look at, okay, does he have a point or does he or she have a point? And, and really, what, are, what channels do they have to go through in order to really kind of bring that concern up? So one of the things that, that, that I found which was acceptable and decent for me is, so obviously the technician is going to run a time slip or a time stamp or a time punch. So I take a look at that and I see what it is that the technician is doing, how they're doing it. I don't, and I cannot stand by the technician as they're doing their work. So I can't always verify this 100%. Sure. But one of the things that, that I do look at is I look at, how much time, let's say, the job, and I have access because I'm on the manufacturer side to see what the job technically pays. Now, I know that most manufacturers have what's called a labor time study team and a labor time study guide. Depending upon who's on the opposite end of that study guide, it could be a whole bunch of professional engineers that work on the vehicle one time or two times and they have a time stamp and study there. They could be a mixture of technicians in that and they could be, let's say, all technicians. But I think that what becomes to be fair is to look at the job that the technician did, to look at what it pays. If there is a recourse, if the technician is saying that this pay is not fair, to submit the proper recourse because it's it's required for us to as an as a manufacturer to a collect the data to find out if as we say the the, the struggle is as is really real um, b to see if there's something that we missed or added on or need to take away and then lastly we want to collect that data because at the end of the day our main goal as a technician doing actual repair service team, garnering that repair with the technician, talking to the client on the retail side, uh, from the manufacturer standpoint as far as paying the rate, and also from the manufacturer side, when I mentioned after sales of repaying the customer, there has to be a balance. So the things that I ask is, can we do the labor time study that's required? Do we have the documentation that's needed? Um, do we have information that is going to help the manufacturer look at some things 
as far as how this is going to work for the next month. Because guaranteed the repair that you're doing today, someone else is going to have to do it tomorrow or the next week or the next day, and they may encounter the same issue. So those are that, that's the first step that I would ask the technician and the technical team to look at. When you, when you say data, right, what are we talking about? Are we talking about just typical labor times across the dealer network uh, that, that, you know, what we paid warranty, you know, from a manufacturer standpoint, what we paid warranty on, we took the average number of all of those repairs and that's kind of what we settled on? Or does it go deeper than that? A lot of times, from my knowledge, it does go a little deeper than that. Um, and because I don't always sit in all of the meetings, it's difficult for me to know how deep it goes. I'm not going to mince any words or, or pull any punches. Um, there is a financial aspect that is involved with this, and, and, and we need to be extremely clear and, 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 and not sugarcoat this. Yeah, there's a financial aspect in that that gets looked at, and that's also what ends up coming into the balance because the amount of time that is put into this and paid out equals an overall dollar amount that someone has to pay, whether it is the customer who's paying that to get that work done on their personal vehicle and it's in the warranty company that's going to pay it, a recall manufacturer that is going to recall a product and to pay to have it collected, um, or the manufacturer or the part team that's going to actually pay for that. So a lot of times those meetings that go into, honestly, to my technician friends out there, a lot of times I will say, you all may not be involved in this financial aspect of the meeting. And whether or not that does or does not make sense, I cannot answer that right now. But I do know that those that those meetings happen. Yeah. So that that is another concern that I that that, that I have to bring up. Well, and I think that you hit on a good point there too. And I one of the things from from my experience working for an OEM that I didn't quite understand when I was on the dealership side was the need for the manufacturer to get reimbursed for warranty themselves, right? So if they, if there was a part that somebody else made for them, uh, you know, a part of the transmission or something like that, and they have to warranty that they're trying to get reimbursed from their, from the manufacturer of that part uh, that they use to assemble the car or the piece of equipment or whatever it is. And that's a big job. I mean, from, from a manufacturer standpoint, because you're, you're not talking just a few dollars, you're talking millions of dollars of trying to get reimbursed for and having that same, you know, when I saw it, it was more of that. It was so, so similar to the dealer manufacturer relationship to the manufacturer, to the, the, the actual part vendor relationship where the manufacturer is trying to work with them to, to try and get, the, the cost back of that failed part. And it's really kind of everybody's trying to do the same thing. And it's just, it, it that's the part where trying to get that across to a tech and, and I wouldn't have known had I not been through that process and uh, in, in some of those meetings where it gets stressful uh, from a manufacturer side to try and, you know, to try and get, get repaid, right? Uh, yes, and, and, and that's why I say that, you know, the, the financial aspect of things comes into play. So the one thing that I, I tell all of my technician friends and all of my customer friends, because you know, obviously everybody that I know owns a car, and sometimes when you work for the manufacturer, they think that, you know, you, you instantly know all of the answers. So one of the things that begins to sometimes be forgotten is 
manufacturers, Nissan, Toyota, Honda, Fiat Chrysler Automobiles, the General Motors, the Fords, the um, Hyundais, whoever it happens to be. Very few of them actually what we call make parts. A lot of them have part suppliers. So most common thing that we see now is we use ZF transmission. Yep. We use Bosch engineering for ignition. And we use Brembo brakes. And um, I know I'm dating myself, but, you know, we used to use Moog suspension, right? Remember Moog suspension? Yes, yes. So <laughs> probably goes on that OG you're restoring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so what ends up happening is the individuals that make the parts, Bendix brake pads, things of that nature. So we as a manufacturer say we're going to build 10,000 Wranglers or 50,000 Camaros or 20,000 Corvettes. We don't go in a workshop and make these parts ourselves. Now, maybe a Koenigsegg or a Bugatti, these ultra high individuals, they, they, they create their own parts. Right. But for your domestic and premium mass market sedans, what they essentially do is they are ordering parts from someone. So your screws, your bolts, your camshafts, your tappets, your lifters, your computer modules, your brake hoses, your brake pads and rotors, your airbags, and it's a little sore subject with some of the recalls <laughs> that may be out there, right? So all of these parts are ordered by a manufacturer. And then you have a team that assembles the vehicle. They put the vehicle together with Takata airbags and Brembo brakes and Bosch ignition and MGK spark plugs and, you know, X amount of whatever it is for the seats and, 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 and these light bulbs or whatever it is. And so when the client experiences a problem or a failure, you push the button or you turn the key and the vehicle doesn't start. You put the vehicle in drive and it doesn't shift into second gear. The dealership has to repair the vehicle under the manufacturer's warranty. The manufacturer's warranty has to sign behind that repair and reimburse the dealership and the technician and the parts department for that repair. But if, but at the end of the day, it is not Nissan's part within reason that fails. If right. it is a ZF transmission, it is a part inside that ZF transmission that was made for that application that may have failed. So then what the manufacturer manufacturers need to do is they now have to go back and decide, A, is this the right application for this vehicle? Did, did we make a manufacturing error? Did we make a decision to put a 500 horsepower transmission on a 700 horsepower vehicle? Okay, that would totally be our issue and error as a manufacturer. Yeah. Or is it the part that we the, the part that was used in that vehicle from the supplier created a problem. And even the suppliers of those parts, your ZFs and your Brembo's, they don't necessarily, they may not make those parts. They may go to this place to get steel and this place to get aluminum and this place to get titanium and this place to go get carbon fiber. So the one thing that, that we've all learned from being in this automotive business is there's really not one person, one guy, one girl. It is a multitude, multifaceted dimension, which really keeps this piece alive and what keeps America great 
yeah. as far as the automotive industry is there's so many different pieces to that. So when a part fails, yes, you the manufacturer have to pay you as a dealership and a technician. If this is a part that failed and it's under warranty, then by whatever laws of the land, yes, we're obligated to make sure that we make that payment to you. Then what ends up happening is we then ask you as a dealership or whatever to send that bad part back sometimes so that we can either examine it or send it to the supplier that sent us that part and says, hey, we've got 50 transmissions, let's say out of 2,000, that didn't make it past 20,000 miles. Can you tell us what happened to that? Obviously make our financial sheet whole because we have paid you for those parts to install them in those vehicles. And then what can we do to avoid those failures? And the reason I bring that up is because that turns into things that manufacturers live and die for. Your, your, your reliability ratings, your baby power ranking, things that unfortunately sometimes we in the business try to blame technicians for, which is unfair. And sometimes it's really not the technician's fault. If we say to a technician from a manufacturer side or a service contract side or a repair manual side, if you get this fault code, replace this part, and the technician is following the manual, and they see 20 cars like that, and they replace the 20 cars, and then their technician buddies right have to hear, oh, well, you're working on those terrible dodges or you're working on those sorry Nissan, or you're working on these Hondas that always break. And they're just saying, well, I'm being asked to repair the vehicle. I'm being asked to put it back together. I'm being asked to make it into running condition. I'm totally not the guy or the girl that basically throws a wrench in it and stops it from working. Right. I'm there to repair it. So a lot of times the technician or what we call it the last man or woman who touched the car is the one that gets blamed for it. But a lot of times it's, way above what we call it their pay grade. So those are things sometimes I, I, I try to tell my technician friends are, and, and, and that's a bittersweet conversation to have. Yeah. Very bittersweet. Well, and I think that's where getting the understanding of how these rates are determined and how they, you know, giving some background to how how a warranty rate, you know, it's not just something that's just brought up out of the sky, you know, like it, it's, there's, there's some <laughs> data behind it. Right. And there, a manufacturer, just like any business is trying not to go broke, right. You're trying to make money. Right. And so uh, there, in some ways, I think that's where we've got to kind of connect the two uh, in understanding of, you know, text, the manufacturers aren't trying to screw you over. They're just trying to pay a fair rate to, uh, not go broke on warranty. Like they know it's a necessary part of the business. And, and I think anybody, a, a tech knows that when they go in that warranty is a necessary part of the business. Where I think the disconnect is, is the anger behind a technician when they come and talk about flat rate or they come and talk about, you know, what they get paid for warranty. And I, I think there's some level of education that's kind of needed to to help them understand that process right and, and to understand you know how how the rates are come up with and I, I know I mentioned uh, in one of the the comments that I had was that you know it would be I think a value to a um, 
to a technician to have some level of training course on this is how we come up with a rate. This is this is the process that we go through because then it helps get an understanding and then get everybody on the same team too, right? Because I think a lot of times right now it feels like it's very much an us versus them type of, of discussion when we talk between manufacturers and technicians or man, manufacturers and dealerships when really we should all be on the same page kind of rowing the boat in the right direction so that techs are paid fairly, the manufacturers taken care of from, you know, getting these vehicles taken care of, the dealerships taken care of and not losing kind of money on it. One, one common thing that I see when it comes to warranty, and maybe this might be the biggest disconnect in my opinion, is the diagnostic side, right? And, and what, when, when, when it comes to a manufacturer maybe not paying the diagnostic time or even really knowing how to pay the diagnostic time, right? Because you, you can't just pay somebody, you know, 30 hours when it should have taken two, uh, you know, for, 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 a, for, a, for a diagnostic job. Where, where's your stance or what do you, I mean, any thoughts on the diagnostic side of warranty? Uh, it, because I do think that's a touchy subject. It is a very touchy subject. And it's, it's a very, as we call it, professional delicate issue. But, but, but here's what I will say, and, and this is not, as we call it, the, the fiat price for automobiles, Alfa Romeo side of things, and it's not the technician side of things. What I find is there's a couple things that, that, that I always ask the technicians to, to do. And a lot of this is required by the but, but I'm going to also say this from, from a different perspective. Diagnostic time and the issue of flat rate makes things difficult for all parties. And, and the reason I say that is essentially what we do is we tell a technician what they're worth, right? They're getting an hourly rate paid to them by the dealership. And that hourly rate is based upon the amount of hours that they, they are putting on a not a fictitious, but a a, a, a a generic time clock, okay? So you're asked to spend time on a vehicle. And however many hours that you're spending on that vehicle, we're then going to send a bill out to someone. Imagine, you know, you hire an attorney. The attorney says, hey, my, my hourly rate is X. And they send you a bill at the end of the month for whatever it is that they did. The one thing that becomes interesting, and I say this to technicians, and, and sometimes they do get a very unfair, they, 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 they get treated unfairly. You go to the doctor, you ask the doctor to repair your body. You know, you, you've got a cough, and let's say it's pancreatitis, and it's, you, know, you need your appendix out, right? Or it's, or it's you give you a couple pills, right? Or you go to an attorney, I've got a legal case, right? Someone you know, took my home and, and, and did this and I've got to file this legal case. A lot of times you're discussing with this doctor what needs to be done. Sometimes doctors tell you what it is that needs to be done. I say, yeah, we're going to surgery, or the attorney says we're going to file this lawsuit, so on and so forth. But if you're hiring these professionals, which these professionals are there to fix problems. One is a health problem, one may be a legal problem. And then there's, right, so they've gone to school, they've gotten training, they've taken exams, and they've proven themselves, and they have ratings. 
that are necessary to keep them in business. You as an automotive technician have done the same doggone thing. You've gone to school, you've gotten some training, you've taken an exam, you've passed that exam, you have a certificate on the wall, whether it's AEC, ASC, or whatever it is, and, and you have that. Okay? You don't wear a suit and tie and go into court. You don't wear a white lab coat and all of that other stuff. You may wear coveralls, or you may not, or you may have a jumpsuit or whatever it is. Right? But you have a job, and you are of a technical nature. The only thing that is different from a technician side is legally, we are required as a technician, as a dealership, to put on a sheet of paper similar to a hotel, how much I am allowed to charge you for doing this work, $140, $160, $200 per hour. And it is posted. And it is posted and available to see before you hire this individual. So what ends up happening is because that information is there, and legally it's required to and estimates and all that other stuff, I think a lot of times when a technician says, different than a doctor, different than an attorney. When you win your case and your attorney says, hey, you know, here's a deal, nine times out of 10, you say, you know, say, you know, I don't really think you spent 45 hours looking up this case. I don't really think that you spent 30 hours having your paralegal research stuff. But a lot of times you just pay it. If you're in that tax bracket and you have the ability to, you have a company that pays it. Doctor comes and says you need open heart surgery. You say I, I don't necessarily know if this. You know, I mean, I got to come to the hospital at six. I'm gonna leave at four. You know, if this is how much the bill is. Just shave a couple points off of that. Right? A lot of times they're like, okay, if I don't do this, I'm gonna <laughs> die. So you get it done. Yeah. Right. But when you bring your, but when you bring your two thousand and I'll use a warranty, right? When you bring your two thousand and eighteen Nissan to the store. You bring your 2019 Alpha Omega. You bring your 2016 Ford with your extended warranty. And it's dead, right? It needs open heart surgery. Because you got a rod that's blown through the thing, right? It, the thing can't breathe, right? It's on its last breath, right? So they put the car into, you know, they, they put the car in the gurney and they roll it in there, right? And they give it triage. They hook it up to the computers and they inject it with some antibiotics or whatever it is right and then they fix the car so a lot of times the technician has the right to be angry because they say i performed open heart surgery on this vehicle and what you're telling me is i should have just given him two aspirins mm. and called it a day so that's the anger from the technician on the diagnostic side the second thing that is more of a problem that i see and the technician industry is one of the few in industries that has this scenario. When you go to an attorney, or you go to a medical professional, they have people, nine times out of 10, if they're high level or medium level, they have people that are specifically there to code the claim, to code how it's billed out, to show what is being done. The technician, the doctor, the surgeon, the attorney is strictly there to do the work. Technicians, last I checked, and, and you were one, and if there are some that have them now, God bless them. Technicians don't have an administrative assistant for them that writes out the technician notes, that tells them what tool to use. They, I mean, they don't even have people that give them the tools, right? They do everything themselves. 
and they're left in a department where they have to fend for themselves, whereas these other industries have individuals that write stories for them. The main thing that kills a technician as far as diagnostic time is the story. Wow. That's the main thing that kills them is a story. Yeah. It's not what you did. It's a story. Man, that's good. That's really good. Are there any ways that you could see from a manufacturer standpoint improving that? Or it, it like, um, I, I know that's kind of a loaded question, but more, more so, how do you help, help the technicians really get their voice out in terms of if there's any displeasure on the warranty rates or uh, on, you know, on flat rate in general, do you see any opportunities to, to help that relationship out a little bit? And, and the reason I ask is I think, I think it's really, really vital for the future of dealership technicians, especially to, to get in and feel like they're being treated fairly. Uh, and, and I love your part about the story because it's so true. But what, what can we do to, to help techs kind of bridge the gap here of, of the, the displeasure maybe of, of how they feel toward some of these warranty rates? One thing, uh, I'm going to give, I'm going to give two examples. And, and, and one is what we call the common one. And, and one is a little bit on the extreme side because it's something that I've been thinking about. The common example that I will say is this. Most manufacturers, and I know that, 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 that we at FCA had this class as well. We have a technician documentation course. It is free to take. Um, most manufacturers will make it free as well. And it is a class that gives a technician general instructions on how to document a ticket, what things to write down, what things to say, preferably things not to say, handwriting skills for those that have to still handwrite tickets, where a lot of us now are doing typing and computers and things of that nature. So that is the one of the common things that I would suggest to do. Make sure that the documentation request that you have from a technician to your management team, your advisor and your warranty team and your service management and your general management team, make sure that all of you all are on the same page. And also look at your individual situation. Are you a technician that works with your warranty team? Meaning, do you work hand in hand with your service management, with your service advisor or individual attending the workshop foreman, do you get the opportunity to discuss some of these items with your warranty administration team? Now, normally, manufacturers don't want the warranty administration team to discuss things with technicians because there should be some sort of a barrier there, but I'm not saying ask, and, and this is, and, and so what, what I will say is this. Don't ask the individual what does the job pay before you do it. I don't agree with that. But I do agree with I do agree with making sure that we have conversations with the administrative team so that everybody kind of knows. Um, going back to my pilot's story, if I'm going to get in this plane, do I have a flight plan? Do I know what the weather report potentially is going to be? Do I know what happened the last four times that we decided to do this flight? Is it a dangerous flight plan, those things in nature, so that you kind of have an idea how to help yourself along to make your journey as peaceful, safe, and as less tumultuous as, as, as possible. So those are, that, that would be the first thing that I would suggest. And I'm, I'm suggesting that because I think that that's important 
for all parties to be able to get on the same page. Have those meetings and talk about what is going on and what's going on as far as your shop flow and management. My extreme answer, and I read this article, I think I read it two years ago, and I think I read it again four years ago. And there was a gentleman, and, and I think it's been floated around, and I'm not sure where we're at with this, but there was an article that was floated around, and I can't remember if it was Six Stops Magazine that was published by Automotive News, or it was one of the automotive journals, and it said, maybe we need to consider moving away from the term flat rate. Maybe we need to consider moving away from that term flat rate. And the reason that I bring that up is because the term flat rate is basically simply that, right? You are being paid a flat fee for an hour of work. And however many hours that I'm able to bill out, not really what it is that you're doing. However many hours I'm able to bill out is what you get paid for. So when we do something like that, and we pay an individual, let's use the term flat rate, the individual is being used to bill out hours. And we may not always be paying attention to, let's say, let's quote unquote, do the job. So for instance, building and assembling vehicles, manufacturers that build and assemble vehicles, right? From the manufacturer side and the OEM side, we know that the only time the manufacturer is truly really getting quote unquote paid and generating revenue is when that vehicle or that part is invoiced to the dealer. When that vehicle and that part is invoiced to the retailer or the bill is quote unquote paid, that's when the manufacturer is making money. The client who drives the car, who drives the Corvette, the Hellcat Dodge or the Lamborghini, they don't really want to always know. Maybe Bugatti's and that thing, they may know, but they don't want to know that it took 15 hours to build that car. They know that it costs $56,000, $295 or whatever it is, and they know that that's what they're going to pay. And so, but when you, when you look at a technician, a lot of times, we will ask technicians, and you've been on the OEM side, you've been in tech side, everybody's this, right? The question that us field guys walk in the door, what, we, what do we want to know? How many hours did you book? How many hours did you bill out? We don't always ask, how many cars did you complete? Yeah. We ask, how many hours did you book? And depending upon what car you worked on, you may have worked on, let's say, four cars that week, and maybe you booked 60 hours. Or maybe, you know, love love our technicians and love our love, you know love our love our C techs as opposed to our A techs, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, got to give a shout out to, to, to those guys and and, and, and and you know that are up and coming, right? You may work on seventy cars and book sixty hours because you did oil changes and tire rotations, right? God loves them. Yeah. So you may not have done ten engine overhauls and got paid your $65. You may have done 130 minute oil changes and got your 50 hours. Now, what I will not say is I will not say which is better because at the end of the day to a dealership, to, a, to an end client, the 50 hours that was billed and paid are the 50 hours. Now, 
strictly from manufacturer side, we want the 100 cars, right? Because it's 100 more cars to go through service drive, it's 100 more clients that are getting detained, it's 100 more opportunities for us to get the 12 out of 10 on the survey, all that other stuff. But at the end of the day, a technician is going to say, and rightfully so, I am taking home X amount of dollars of pay because my timesheet has a corrected 50 hours. Very few times a technician going to, let's say, care about or maybe even know a month from now, how many cars did they work on unless they go to the computer and log in and say what it was. If we go to a system different than the flat rate system, where we start to see this is the job, this is, let's say, what it's going to pay. And maybe it's a dollar figure, maybe it's an, well, I won't say it's an hour figure, but it is, right? Now, maybe it's a dollar figure, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. This is how we get to trying to balance some of that out. Because when you're paying someone strictly on a time basis, their main goal, as a technician, rightfully so, is to book time. They do not have to be. And they are not always obligated to concern themselves with the number of cars or the number of people that they see. They're responsible for booking time. Service manager is responsible for booking hours. That's what the general manager wants, so on and so forth. So if there's a way to bridge that gap, and maybe it's going away from the flat rate system and going to the per job system, that I don't have that answer. I don't know it's kind of extreme because there's, there's probably a whole bunch of union technicians that are getting ready to say, oh, oh my God, let me, let me find this guy, right? Let me find this well, guy. How dare you get rid of flat rate? <laughs> I can see it coming now. Yeah, well, but I, I think there, it's a discussion that needs to be had at some point, right? Like, I, I just think it's, a, it, it's something that has been such a hot topic for so long that I'm hoping that, you know, we can, we can continue this conversation and and really try to make all parties feel that they're being treated fairly. And that goes for the manufacturer too, right? The manufacturer needs to feel like they're getting treated fairly. The, the dealer does, the, the, the tech does, the customer does. And so the more we can work toward that, I think, uh, you know, as a, a community of people, uh, I think the more progress we're going to make. So uh, we're, we're about bumping up on your hour already, Squire. That was, uh, that was, Oh, yeah, that was really good. I, I, I really, um, I learned some things there, man. And it, it was, it was some good <laughs> stuff. I, yeah, it, it, this was a great conversation and uh, I, I hope to have you back on again. Uh, I think you bring so much value in regard to seeing kind of the whole picture and, and kind of in an unbiased way, right? I, you've got that love for the technicians and, and the understanding from the manufacturer and the dealer side. So I, uh, I, I think uh, you bring a lot of value here and uh, hopefully get you on again. Oh, I appreciate it. Love to come back.